Good morning. Yeah, I was told last night, uh, really sorry about sticking that thing out there. It's like a shin hitter or thing there. And sure enough, I hit it. Uh, I was warned, uh, but welcome. Welcome to all of you here. Welcome to those of you who are watching online, uh, live, and later on demand. Um, we're in the second week of our series on justice, and it's a story of God series. I'll explain that in a few moments. But uh, I want you to open your Bibles. If you grab your Bibles, please. Understanding the Bible and your purpose in life doesn't have to be a mystery. So that's why we open our Bibles every single week here. If you don't have a Bible, for those of you who are here, there's a Bible in the seat rack in front of you. Turn to the first book, Genesis 18. Genesis 18, right there in the first book. So justice, social justice, a huge topic in our world today, in our society, uh, but it also happens to be a very prominent topic in the Bible as well. And as with any word justice or social justice or any concept, uh, how our, our culture, how our society talks about it, and how the Bible talks about it don't always match, but there is overlap, and we have to acknowledge that overlap whenever we can. So I'm preaching on the subject of justice we're taking a break from Romans. We covered in one series, Romans 1 through 4. We'll pick up 5 through 8 when we're done with this series. But I'm preaching about it because I have a pastoral concern. And my pastoral concern is, is it seems that a lot of Christians are unaware of how much the Bible talks about justice. And if they're aware about how much, I feel like a lot of times just in my conversations with people that a lot of people don't know what it says about justice. And because of this ignorance, what happens is a lot of folks wind up buying into ideas that lure them away from a biblical foundation and a biblical faith, a biblically-based faith in Christ, and sometimes walk from, away from the faith altogether. Uh, and a lot of other people fail to do justice, which the Bible actually calls us to do justice. So this series seeks to build a better understanding of justice and social justice from a biblical point of view so that we can seek justice and stand against injustice, and we can do it together as followers of Christ, and we can do it in a way that glorifies God and also demonstrates love for our neighbor. And I really believe that Christians can be united, uh, even though you know a, a lot of evidence seems to go against it, uh, that we can be united around biblical justice. But we can be united, and we can be united even uh, without always agreeing about the solutions for injustice. And sometimes we may not even agree as to what constitutes an injustice in our society. So why, if we can't always agree on these things, why go forward? Well, the reason is, is because we can learn from each other if we're willing to dive into this and see what the Bible has, has to say. We can learn to think, speak, and act in ways that reflect the Bible's priorities. And we can act on our convictions, even if sometimes we're going to act on our convictions in different ways. Um, in this way, we can be what Jesus called us to be. He called us to be salt in the world, and he called us to be a light to the world. So as a story of God series, which is in the subtitle of this series, it means we're studying in Genesis and going all the way to Revelation. And so uh, for those of you who are rather new to us, I uh, just want you to know there's a lot of Bible in this series and a lot of working our way through the Bible. And there are going to be times, uh, somebody told me last week was 
came Five Oaks for the very first time, was invited because they were at that event, and, uh, and came, and this person said, on my background, I don't, she said, I don't, even, I don't even know how to open a Bible. <laughs> That's what she said. She says, your sermon hurt my brain. Uh, so uh, I, I will tell you this. If you feel lost in the midst of kind of working our way through the Bible, it's probably because you haven't taken our Story of God course. And uh, get what you can out of this. But what we do in the Story of God course is we show that the Bible tells one story. It's the story of Jesus. Jesus said that the Bible tells the story of him. And it's the, whole, the whole Bible tells his story. And we show how it progresses. And so we look at 10 different scenes from the Bible. That's something that we're imposing on it just to be able to understand it. Okay, So we look at 10 different scenes. We're going to be working our way through these scenes, combining some of the scenes. But that's what it means by being a Story of God series. So we're starting, um, before we start, we're going to pray, as we do every week. We're going to ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate His Word to us, so please join me in prayer. Father, we thank You uh, for this time in Your Word. We thank You that You illuminate Your Word for us, Holy Spirit. Teach us, empower us to live in the way that You've called us to live. And Father, I pray that as we look at this subject that You will speak uh, to our hearts in a way that we can find um, places of agreement in our world as well as take a stand in, in ways that we have to take a stand for your sake, for your truth, for what we know is, is ultimately right and is best and is the best way of doing justice. Father, uh, this weekend, uh, Monday, is a celebration or a remembrance day, uh, remembering those and giving honor to those who have served our country and lost their lives in serving our country. We thank you for those lives. And we pray for families who are still experiencing that loss in their lives. We pray that you would give them uh, a sense of meaning in what they've done. And I pray, Father, um, that you would uh, help us to honor them and honor the lost. We thank you. We thank you. For hearing our prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, uh, as I said, if you've taken our Story of God course, we look at these 10 scenes. Today we're looking at the third scene in the Bible, which we call Promise. And Promise runs from basically Genesis 12 through Genesis 50, but then it impacts the rest of the story as well. So, this is the rest of the book of Genesis. Now, if we're, as we're doing every week, uh, most weeks in the series, we're going to be looking at the Bible Project video on justice. Uh, they pack about an hour's worth of information into five minutes, so you can see these things more than once and still get a lot out of it. So we're going to watch the one on justice. A couple of things that I want you to point out to you. Uh, one is, listen to what it says about Abraham, because that's where we're going to be focusing today. And then listen to what it says about righteousness and how it defines righteousness. All right, let's watch the video. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world 
by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. 
But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. All right, so uh, I'm not going to do a lot of review from last week. Uh, hopefully you'll go back and see that if you didn't see last week. But on the uh, sermon application, guys, there's a whole section that's review. And if you want to look at that really quickly while I move forward or refer to it later, you have it there as a, as a reference. The only one thing that I want to say is, is that one of the things we talked about last week is that the whole Bible story is about one aspect of justice. It's the way that justice is spoken of mostly in the Old Testament, and that is the restorative aspect of justice. It's trying to restore shalom, the way things are supposed to be. And so, I mean, if you look at the whole Bible story, it fits exactly into that. That's what Jesus came for. That's what happens in the new creation is things are restored to the way that they're supposed to be. And that's a, that's a theme of righteousness or of, of justice that runs through the whole story. So one of the things that, we, that you'll see, <clears throat> and the video brought it out, is that justice and righteousness are oftentimes paired. And I don't think they're just paired. I think they're bound together. Um, I think they're, they're intricately bound together. And I want to show you that. And what I'm going to show you is something that in my own study for this sermon, I got really excited about because nobody else was talking about it. And all of a sudden, it just like presented itself to me as I just put in the words into a concordance online uh, of the Bible. And it just started bringing all the times and the places where it happens. Because what happens is justice and righteousness are paired at key points in the story of God. And um, I'm looking forward to showing that uh, to you. So the very first time that justice and righteousness are spoken of as together, as like as one, you know, like, like two sides of the same, same coin, is in this promise scene. Uh, let's go back to the beginning real quickly in the creation. What we have is God creates a good world, and he reigns and humans reign under him. That's what it means to be made in the image of God, that we are rulers under God. Shalom reigns. That's order and flourishing and relational wholeness. It's the way that things are supposed to be. Uh, the problem is we choose to be our own gods. We break the world, and we experience separation from God, and we experience separation, uh, relational separation from each other. But God promises shalom again. He promises restoration. He sets off on a rescue mission already in Genesis 3, and we saw how that is last week. So as the story continues from Genesis 3, it just keeps spiraling down and down and down. Humanity just keeps spiraling. And a turning point in the story happens in Genesis 12 
when God calls one man, Abraham, eventually know him as Abraham, he asks him to leave. He tells him to leave his extended family, which was a huge thing, and to go to a land that he will show him when he gets there. And so leave, and you will go to this land that is going to be yours and your, the home of your descendants. And um, this promise to Abraham impacts the whole rest of the story of God. It runs through the whole story of God. God promises to Abraham that he will have descendants and that he will bless them, but not just to bless him and not just to bless his descendants. He does this in order to bless all the nations. He's going to make a nation out of him, a nation that will bless all the nations. So God says this in Genesis 12. He repeats it again to Abraham in Genesis 15. Abraham needs a lot of encouragement in this because Abraham and Sarah are old beyond childbearing years, and they haven't had a child yet. And so God has to keep coming and say, no, you will. You will have a child. You will have a, a nation, a nation that's going to come out from you. So in Genesis 18, he reminds him of this again. Now, each time he reminds him of this promise, uh, he unfolds a little bit more of the plan. And we have that again in Genesis 18. Now, the context is really interesting because the context is three men come to visit Abraham to tell him about their plans. Uh, well, they come to, to visit him, and as they're leaving, they say, you know, maybe we should tell him about our, plan, our plans. Uh, the narrative shifts from three men to speaking to him to it being God speaks to him. So these three men or one of the men uh, is a representative or God coming as a human representation. We're not sure exactly what it is, but it's something along those lines. And they remind him that he is going to be this great nation. And, he, and Sarah is listening. She, his wife is listening. She's in the tent. And she knows it's impossible. And so she laughs. And that's where we pick up the story. Genesis 18, verse 13. And here you'll, you'll see this. Like the character changes. It's Yahweh. You see capital letters. It's the name of God there. Then the Lord, Yahweh, said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, well, I really have a child now that I am old. Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied, and she said, I did not laugh. But he said, yes, you did laugh. When the men got up to leave, they looked down towards Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I am, going, what I am about to do? Now, What's said here is really actually for us, because this is like what's going on in the Lord's mind as he's trying to decide, am I going to tell Abraham what I'm going to do? And he says, sure, why? Well, look at verse 18. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. How? It tells us. How is he to keep the way of the Lord? By doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Abraham is going to be a nation. It's going to be a nation that blesses all the other nations. How? By doing justice and righteousness. That's the words there that are there. By doing justice and righteousness, that's how he's going to do this. Now, it's really important not to miss this because Abraham's descendants will bless the world by doing, first of all, justice. Abraham 
will do justice. That means Abraham's family, his descendants, which is Israel, the Hebrew people, the Jews, will, are being called by God and will bless the nations as they treat all people, as we looked at last week, what does justice mean? As they treat all people with dignity uh, and fairness because all human beings are made in the image of God. We are equal in worth before God. So their life together is going to be characterized, and this we hit next week, it's going to be characterized by laws and systems and a way of life that punishes acts of injustice and help all people flourish, so the retributive justice and the restorative justice. So that's what Abraham's family is going to do, and this is how they're going to bless the world. Secondly, Abraham's family is going to do righteousness. Now, in the video, it had what the Hebrew uh, spelling for righteousness is, but if you put that into uh, English um, transliteration, it's zedekah. So the Hebrew word for righteousness is zedekah, and to do righteousness means to do what is the right thing morally and ethically, by God's standard of what morals and ethics are about. But it's not simply about a private morality. Now, I have to say that because in Western society, we take the word righteousness and we privatize it. You know, it's about, well, you know, my little religious way of living and things, you know, little sins or these sins that I shouldn't do. But it's more than that. It's a relational term that is actually pointing toward restorative justice. And you see this throughout all of the scripture. So this link between justice and righteousness is very similar to the kind of link that you find with repentance and faith in Scripture. We covered this a few weeks ago in the Roman series that a lot of the time in the Bible when repentance is mentioned and faith is not mentioned, faith is the other side of the same coin. In other words, turn from your sin, repentance, and turn to what? God. Okay, so the assumption is if it just mentions repentance, it doesn't mean you just turn from the sin and just go like this. You go towards God. Same thing when faith, when you begin to trust God, you put your trust in God, you're not putting your trust in yourself, in your other gods, that sort of thing. So repentance is it, both, they're different, but they're two sides of the same coin. We saw the same thing with the cross and resurrection. And so the Apostle Paul, for example, can say, as he does, Whenever I speak, I always speak about the cross. And the gospel is all about the cross. And then he defines the gospel, and there's no cross <laughs> in some of his definitions. There's only resurrection. Why? Because it's two sides of the same coin. They work together. It's the cross and the resurrection. They're not the same thing, but they're two sides of the same thing. Same thing. Justice and righteousness are not the same thing, but they are two sides of the same coin. They get paired uh, together, and there's, they, they help define each other. So why is this important? It's important because in the Bible, the righteous, those are people who have been declared righteous by God by putting their faith in God. The righteous are people who do justice. It's, it's built in, baked into the definition of what that means. And the standard of biblical justice is one that aligns with righteousness, with what is right, ethical, and good. And so you have two sides of the same coin. So Abraham's descendants are going to bless all the nations by doing what is just and right. And this is where I want to show you how if you just do a, a search, you go to BibleGateway.com and you put in the word just and right, that'll capture every time just and right are in a verse together. Um, 
And it'll also capture, um, every time, justice and righteousness. Okay, so um, there may be a few where they're just a few verses apart. I didn't catch those. I didn't look for that. Uh, But this was really interesting, where they're just mentioned together like a pair. So the next time justice and righteousness are just right, right together, justice and righteousness, is in 2 Samuel chapter 8. Now, this is a really important point because this is King David, another key turning point in the story of God. And it's at a time when David is flourishing and he's doing God's will. It's about two to three chapters before the story of Bathsheba. And so at this point, uh, there's this summary statement by the author saying, this is, this is what this is what David's reign is all about. And here's what it says. It says, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. So you have, what is Ab- what are Abraham's descendants going to do? David being an, a descendant of Abraham, <clears throat> now a nation. The, the descendants of Abraham are now a nation. And when it summarizes that David is doing well, how does it summarize it? It says they were doing what is just and right. Okay, so God promises David he's going to have a son that's going to rule forever. Now, we know now at our vantage point that that son is Jesus. He's in the line of David. Uh, But when his son Solomon reigns and reigns with wisdom and becomes the richest of, like, the whole world at that time and builds the temple and does all the things that he does, everybody thinks this is the son that's going to reign forever. And so we even see that not only is he flourishing and causing flourishing in Israel, but that all of a sudden the nations are starting to notice. All right, so think of how are you going to bless the world? How are you going to bless all the nations? You're going to bless all the nations by doing what is just and right. So the Queen of Sheba, this is representative of the nations, comes to see the splendors of Solomon. And there's a point where she says this about Solomon. Praise be to the Lord your God who has delighted in you and placed you on the throne of Israel because the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. All right, again, so they they come paired. That's the very next time that they're paired together, one right after another in the story of God. Now, uh, we know that Solomon is a bust. All right, he does not end well. He is not, he's only a partial fulfillment as prophecies in the Old Testament are. They, they have several partial fulfillments, but they're all pointing to the fulfillment in Christ. Uh, Solomon's a bust. After him, the nation of Israel splits in two, Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Uh, eventually, Israel in the north gets wiped out, uh, really from history because of assimilation Uh, That happens when the Assyrians take them and um, they get sent all over the world and they intermarry and basically are lost as a nation. And so um, things don't end well, but the nation of Judah uh, has some faithful kings uh, and a lot of unfaithful ones. And before they're destroyed by Babylon coming in, God sends a prophet to one of the kings and says, this is your chance. This is your chance. And this is what it says. In Jeremiah 22, 1. This is what the Lord says. Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message there. Hear the word of the Lord to you, king of Judah. You who sit on David's throne. You, your officials, and your people 
who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. All right? So they're not doing that. It's a, it's a warning. Things are going to be, you're going to be taken into captivity. The temple is going to be destroyed. The prophet Jer- Jeremiah is warning and warning and warning. How do you avoid this? Well, it goes back to that theme that came with Abraham, summarized David, that at the high point of Solomon's ministry, and now he says, do what is just and right. So one more link um, in Scripture, because Isaiah talks about that son that's coming. He talks about the Messiah. He talks about Jesus who's coming. And this is what he says about Jesus. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. All right, so you see, you just kind of trace it through the story. This is such an important theme for this story, which is why it's so sad that so many Christians who believe that the Bible is God's authoritative word, zero in on uh, words like justice and righteousness and privatize them, turn them into something that's just about, you know, not committing certain sins and that sort of things. And another whole group of Christians, like, make it their God. It makes it the thing that they're going to follow. They focus on social justice divorced from the ethics of the Bible, the righteousness that's described in the Bible. So sometimes their solutions are just as unjust as the injustice that they're trying to speak against. They identify the injustice. Their solutions are not filled with justice because they're not righteous. God calls his people to do justice and righteousness. Two sides of the same coin. The righteous person is concerned for justice. We talked about last time, concerned for social justice because justice is always a social thing. Call it whatever you want, but it is a social thing. And social justice, divorced from righteousness, is either going to fall short, it's not going to bring justice, or it's going to shoot wide. It's, it's going to miss justice altogether. All right, so I want to bring this home a little bit. I want to look at the patriarchs and the matriarchs during this period of Genesis 12. So the promise scene, Genesis 12 through 50, tells the story of the patriarchs and the matriarchs of the faith. Um, the patriarchs are known as the patriarchs, not only because they are featured in Genesis, but they're also known as patriarchs because when, for example, and this happens a lot of times, when, it, for example, Moses, uh, way later, goes to the people of Israel and says, I'm going to take, you know, God has sent me to you, and I'm going to, we're going to take you out of slavery in Egypt. Uh, they say, what God are you talking about? Because we know the Israelites, as slaves in Egypt, had all kinds of gods. All right, they've already kind of like forgotten about God. They've got idols in their, in their homes. And so they say, which God? You know, what God are you talking about? And God instructs Moses to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Those are the patriarchs of the Christian faith. Now, there are matriarchs as well. From among the wives of the patriarchs, there are three that stand out, Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel. And their story is told in the rest of Genesis. So stories of injustice perpetrated against the patriarchs and matriarchs are many in the story. But one, this is one of the most interesting features of the story of God. The Bible isn't interested. Can we add that next slide? The Bible isn't interested in hiding the many stories of injustice perpetrated by the patriarchs and matriarchs. All right, The Bible tells the stories of where 
they perpetrate injustice against other people constantly. And so you have the story of Abraham and Sarah. Again, it, there's a lot of Bible. If you don't know the story, take our story of the God course or read through the Bible this year um, on your own. But uh, Abraham and Sarah's injustice uh, toward their servant, an Egyptian named Hagar, and her son Ishmael. It's just horrible what they do to them. Because Abraham has a child named Ishmael. It's Abraham's child with Hagar, and it's because Sarah insists on it. <laughs> so we've got to have a kid. I can't have a kid. God keeps promising the kid. Let's take the matters into our own hands. So they have this kid named Ishmael. And what they do to Ishmael and to Hagar, basically, they just kick him out of the house. Once, once Isaac is born, it's like, get out of here. And they're going to die. They're just going to die of starvation. They have no place to go. They have no family. They have no anything. It's just horrible what they do. Okay, so fast forward in the story, and you have Isaac, who is the son that's born to Abraham and Sarah. And Isaac's wife, Rebekah, commits an injustice against one of her own sons. So they have twins. The first twin to be born is named Esau, and he's his father's favorite. The second one is named Jacob, one of the patriarchs. And that's Rebekah's favorite. And she connives with Jacob to steal what is rightly Esau's, all right? So, and it's just terrible what they do. And Esau says, next time I see Jacob, Jacob runs. So next time I see Jacob, he's a dead man. I will kill Jacob next time I see him. Fast forward, Jacob. His mother favored him. What, is, what does Jacob do? He favors his 11th son, Joseph, who was the youngest for many, many years. And so he favors the youngest one. In Scripture, favoritism, we're going to learn this when we get to the last sermon of this series, favoritism is uh, one of the ways that injustice is most defined in Scripture. It's favoring one person over another instead of treating them as people of equal dignity. And so um, Joseph is favored by, by Jacob. So it's an injustice to the rest of the brothers. Now the brothers return the favor. They know Joseph is Jacob's favorite, so they plot to kill Joseph to get even with their father. And uh, they don't kill him. Instead, they sell him into slavery. So he's sold into slavery by his brothers, and he languishes for 12 years, partially in slavery, mostly in prison for 12 years until uh, through events that God orchestrates, he rises to a position of prominence within the nation. Uh, right in that story of Joseph, and it's one of the greatest stories in the Bible, uh, uh, right in there, there is this, this aside. So his older brother Judah, who of course is the one whom Jesus comes, you know, into, you know he's in the line of Judah. His older brother Judah treats his daughter-in-law Tamar in the most despicable way possible. I mean, just absolutely grotesque what he does. There comes a certain point, I'm not going to tell the whole story, it would become a PG-13 sermon. Um, but what happens is there comes a point where he says to, um, to these people, he says, burn her alive. <laughs> and it's an injustice to burn her alive. She doesn't get burnt alive. But uh, this is what Judah, this son of a patriarch, the one whose name, he's the namesake for the tribe of Judah, the southern kingdom where King David comes out of and all of that is willing to do that. And I 
we challenge you to reread that story, not just from the perspective of, man, he's being so mean to her, but read it from the perspective of how is it that this guy has so much power that he can treat this woman with less dignity as if she was a person of less dignity just because she's a woman and she's powerless. He's a man and he's powerful. It's in the story. It runs right through the story and see how grotesque it is that a society has been built that way where that kind of thing can happen. Okay, what do we learn from all this? Three things, three takeaways. The first one is extend grace to those who treat you unjustly. Now, that may seem like kind of a weird place to start. We're learning about doing righteousness and justice, right? Um, shouldn't we just like go and do justice and righteousness? Well, it really starts with grace, and it's extending grace in, um, to people who have not treated us justly. So the example of this is God throughout this entire story, because Abraham's family fails turn after turn to do exactly what God said, which is do justice and righteousness. I mean, they failed. There are more stories of their failures in the story of God than of their successes. And so um, from start to finish, what God does for Abraham's family and his descendants is an act of grace. It's not something that they merit. It's not something like we lived up to what God said. There is even in one of the retellings of the blessings of the blessing, many of you know the story, Genesis 15, where God basically says, you're going to fail. And because of your failure, rather than you be punished, I'm going to be punished. God himself says, I'm, I'm basically going to be torn to pieces because of your failure. And again, it's pointing towards Christ. So God over and over extends grace. And the scripture has this in many, many places, but in Colossians we have this, this is fast forward to the New Testament, where the Apostle Paul is saying to the congregation there in Colossae, he says, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. So we're supposed to be extending grace to one another as God has extended grace to us. Um, there's probably no more beautiful picture in all of scripture of this Colossians passage being lived out than the story of Joseph. Uh, because again, he was treated you know, with this injustice of his um, brothers, and he rises to prominence, and because of his prominence, he's able to save Jacob and all of his evil brothers. He's able to save them, and one innocent, who is a 12th brother that is born after he is sold, uh, Benjamin. And so, um, oh, we're going to put it up here. This, this is like right at the end of Genesis. Genesis 50 is the last chapter. And it says, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, Jacob dies, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they're like, maybe he's been nice to us because dad's still alive. But now he's gone. What's he going to do? So they sent word to Joseph saying, now this has to be just made up, <laughs> all right? It's not a very good, um, like, made-up thing. Listen, listen to what it says. Your father left these instructions before he died. Here they are. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and wrongs they committed for treating you so badly. <laughs> it's childish almost, you know. And um, now please forgive the sins of the servants uh, of, of God of your father. All right. It's like, okay. When their message came to him, 
Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? In other words, he's saying, am I, am I the one who's going to seek revenge, judgment? Am I going to bring retributive justice? I leave that to God. And then he says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He says, you know, I've gone through a lot because of you guys, but God is going to use what I've gone through, the injustices, has used them, to accomplish his eternal purposes. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. It really starts with offering grace to other people because we've received grace. None of us live a life of justice and righteousness. Not well. None of us do. Number two, is there a word here to those who would revise history? Or erase it? Now, I put that as a question mark because um, it's too big of a subject to cover right now, but it's just something I want to introduce an idea. And it's very complicated, you know, because uh, we, we live in a country that is not a Christian country. Uh, no country is a Christian country. And, um, and so, what can we expect from our culture? Uh, all we can do is speak truth as we know it from Scripture. And we can be a witness to that, but we can't like, make everybody else follow God's ways. But, but here's, here's the thing. Uh, some people take our history as a nation and they revise it uh, to make the important people in our past and the events of our past look better than they actually are. We take some of our you know, patriarchs of, of our nation and we make them out to be better than they actually were. On the other hand, some people, especially lately, just want to erase certain people from history. It's like, don't even teach about them in, in, um, in history books because they did evil things. And so they discredit everything they did because a part of their life was evil. Now, the Bible doesn't do either one of those things. So um, Bible-believing Christians, we can say this. Erasing people from the telling of history is not what we do. All right? We don't do that. We don't erase people because there's evil mixed in. Simple re reason. From a Christian worldview, from a biblical worldview, we, we look and we say, there is no one who would survive in the history books. There is no one that doesn't do evil. All of us do evil. All right, so we don't erase people because they did evil. Uh, we may not want to erect statues to them, <laughs> you know, in some cases, uh, but we don't erase them from history. Uh, secondly, expecting historical figures to be without sin. We don't do that because we understand. And then finally, making them out to be better than they really were does a disservice to everyone. We don't make them out to be better than they really were. All those things are wrong for believers. All right. Here's the third takeaway. Don't spiritualize righteous living. Righteous living is committed to restorative justice. It's paired, two sides of the same coin. We're going to see this even more next week when we get to sacrifice and law scenes in the Scripture. 
By spiritualized, here's what I mean. Don't reduce Christian faith to individual practices like prayer and Bible reading. Don't reduce it to not doing certain sins. Don't do these sins and everything is okay. If you want to understand what it means to live a life of justice and righteousness, one of the great examples in Scripture, in fact, in Judaism, this is held up as one of two passages that give a thorough description of what it looks like. It's a passage from Job. It's in Job 29, and Job, in Job 29, um, uh, he, we'll, we'll look at right in the middle of what he says for a moment. I want to show you verse 14, what he says. He says, I put on righteousness as my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. Now, so the context is terrible things have happened to Job and his friends are accusing him. These terrible things have happened because you've been a terrible person. And he's like, uh, it's not how it works. I have not been like this horrible person that you've been describing. He says, I lived my life in a way that I, like Abraham. This is, by the way, the story of Job is placed in pre-Abrahamic times. All right, that's, that's where the story happens. And so he says, um, I... I lived it. I wore it, okay? And then he describes what it looks like to put those things on. Whoever heard me spoke well of me, and those who saw me commended me, because I rescued the poor who cried for help and the fatherless who had none to assist them. The one who was dying blessed me. I made the widow's heart sing. Okay, listen to how this is so far beyond just don't commit a few sins. Justice and righteousness looks like this. It says, I put on righteousness in my clothing. Justice was my robe and my turban. I was eyes to the blind and feet to the lame. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. He says, I walked into the place where judgments were made and I would take up the case of the stranger. Who's the stranger? The immigrant. That's, that's what it means. It's the person Everybody goes, not part of my family, just kind of sojourning with us for right now. I took up their case. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. All right, he's doing justice and he's doing righteousness. It's not only Job who does this, the greatest example in the scripture is God himself who models what righteousness and justice looks like. And so Hagar and Ishmael are kicked out of the house, right? They're going to die of starvation. But God comes and visits them, and this is what it says. God heard the boy crying. They're, they're off in the wilderness. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter, Hagar? Do not be afraid. God has heard the boy crying as he lies there. Lift the boy up and take him by the hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Do you understand Ishmael is not part of the plan, not part of the positive plan of Israel, uh, the, the, the children of Abraham being blessed. He is going to be the father of a nation that is going to oppose Israel. But God seeing this injustice does restorative justice for this family. Um, it's not uh, only that, but we go on to Esau and Jacob. When Jacob is told by God to go back home. He's like scared to death. Esau meets him with an army. Uh, Jacob holds his favorite wife and favorite child way, way back to kind of protect him. Like if he kills the first round, he might get to the second round, but maybe we can make an escape. All right. Esau comes and says, I've been blessed by God in incredible ways. I, I'm strong and I'm rich beyond measure. 
and I welcome you back, brother. And he weeps as he grabs a hold of his brother and welcomes him back. And then you have the story of Tamar, treated despicably by Judah. And you get, of course, to Matthew chapter 1, to the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. So in the very genealogy of Jesus, only three women are mentioned, and one of those women is Tamar. God models restorative justice over and over in the Scripture. We can do no less. We can do no less. Well, let's begin our response together here as we uh, celebrate communion together. It's the greatest act of restorative justice that we have in the Scripture. God indeed is torn to pieces for the sins of Abraham and the sins of humanity. When the night he was betrayed, he takes the bread, the bread of the Passover, and he says, this is my body which is broken for you. It's broken for you. Let's eat together. And he takes the cup and he says, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And every time we do that, we proclaim the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for being a God who seeks to restore and renew. You're doing that in our lives through your Holy Spirit. You're doing it in, you will do it in our world at your return. We look forward to that day. And in the meantime, Father, I pray that we would be people who do justice and righteousness. That we would be living out what life looks like if your will would be done on earth. We pray that each day, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are your hands and feet. Help us to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.